there was so much smoke there and I wanted to see what the fire was um, in the middle. There had been a, a little bit of coverage. Um, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, Newsweek, Mother Jones. People had covered a bit of it, but it felt to me like there was more to the story. And so I was able to convince my editors to fly me to Baku, Azerbaijan and dig in. And I had no idea it was going to take me three and a half, four months uh, to report it all out. So it appeared from the article that you actually visited Azerbaijan several times to do research, uh, scope out geography, look at the hotel, and uh, visit with people. How many trips did you make? It was just one trip, but it was a long trip, the longest I've been away since my five-year-old son was born, I, um, and, so, and it was hard, but and, and it was a busy, busy time. Um, and, uh, you know, what I learned... Well, I learned a lot on the scene. Um, you know, one, one thing I learned is, is the partners that Trump had chosen. It's a family called the Mamadoff family. Um, the father is uh, Zia Mamadoff, who's the uh, uh, transportation minister of Azerbaijan. His brother, Elton, who was a member of parliament, signed the deal. And Zia's son, Anar. Um, that... This was one of the first tip-offs that there was something really weird. These are guys who are so widely seen. You know, Azerbaijan, I think, as your listeners certainly know, is famously a fairly corrupt country. Um, and in Azerbaijan, the Mamadovs are thought of as among the most corrupt people. And that's not something you need to hire, you know, Ernst & Young or some special due diligence firm to find out. That's literally stop any Azerbaijani on the street and say, who are the most corrupt people in the country? And you'll very quickly hear the name Mamadov, um, uh, Zia Mamadov. It's pretty obvious. I mean, he lives in one of the fanciest houses on one of the fanciest streets in a city of, of enormous wealth. His son flies around the world in his own Gulfstream jet. And, you know, these are not people where there's any clear reason why they would be just quite so so wealthy um so that was the first shock like how did anyone at the trump organization not understand that they were choosing to do business with people who are nakedly wildly incredibly um corrupt well and and one of my favorite lines from the entire piece if i could just quote it in one of the cables a u.s diplomat describes zia manamadov as quote notoriously corrupt, even for Azerbaijan. It doesn't get much better than that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I remember I was in Iraq for a year when the U.S. first invaded, and I did a big series for Marketplace Radio, where I was at the time, on corruption in Iraq. And it was fascinating in a, you know, Iraq, obviously under Saddam, and, and after Saddam was it's a thoroughly corrupt country, and it was, as is Azerbaijan. But it was fascinating to learn how even in thoroughly corrupt countries where everyone knows that senior government leaders are on the take, there's still a very careful parsing of levels of corruption and degrees of corruption. And, um, and, and, uh, and, and in, in Azerbaijan, there's no question who's at... It, because, I mean, Mamadov was famous for, for sort of two things. There's both the amount of corruption, so the amount of money that he's made off of crooked deals, but then there's also just the nakedness of it, you know, just the absolute openness. You know, there, there's really, 
you know, no, no secret here. There's no, nobody's even trying to hide it. But the corruption, um, uh, the Mam Mamadov, Mam Mamadov, uh, Amir Mamadov, um, is the head of the or the minister of transportation. Could you maybe explain how a minister of transportation might be involved in corruption around the construction of a hotel? Sure. So, um, so Mamadov's main way of making money, it seems fairly clear, is not surprisingly, he's minister of transportation. So it's road contracts and then, you know, rail contracts, et cetera. Azerbaijan was one of the poorest of the Soviet uh, republics under the Soviet Union, and then it got independence. And after independence, it just was this, it had terrible roads, terrible rail. And so when oil started to flow in the early 2000s, a lot of the money, tens of billions of dollars, was flowing into rail projects. And so the Mamadovs um, oversaw a, a business empire that was a lot connected to rail and, uh, and, and, and roads. Um, the, under his reign, um, average prices for road construction in the world was something like 5 or $6 million per kilometer. And under him, it was $18 million per kilometer um, of the public rate, the rate that the government actually admitted to, although the assumption it was much more than that. So, so that was the core of how he was making money, and we can get into who his partners were in doing that. But there was this building boom going on as well, as you often have, and, um, and there was these big oligarchs, these Azerbaijani oligarchs, kind of competing for who has the bigger building. And I think, you know, my strong sense, I can't say it for sure, is that the Trump Tower for the Mamadovs was not, first and foremost, a business proposition. It really was an ego statement or a political statement to, you know, alert the rest of the country and the rest of the oligarchs, hey, we're in this game, too. We're not just building roads. Um, we're also, um, you know, going to have a big, big structure with a famous American name right in the center of, or right near town. As I, as I explained in the article, um, they chose a site where nobody would ever put a luxury hotel. It's just a really kind of depressing site. And the reason they chose that site is that it was on train tracks that the Minister of Transportation controlled. So he was able to basically privatize his own ministries uh, as we we believe this is the case. I can't say with 100% assurance, but it seems the evidence is very strong that he just chose to, uh, you know, sort of privatize into his own pocket or technically into his brother's pocket um, the the rail, some of the some of the railway land. But you know, as happens in most places in the world, railway land usually isn't where you want to put a luxury hotel. So this luxury hotel was in a very odd place in the city. But there was nowhere more, near anything nice. I mean, it was more than just railway land because you reported there was condemnation of uh, individual residences to build this tower as well. Yeah, it was really fascinating seeing how, you know, sort of an oligarch feudal sort of economy works. Um, so there was railway land that, you know, really was for the rail. I mean, there, there were rail, railroads and then, and then the right-of-way, and he took some of that land. Then there was another um, bit that 
And then even, I think, under Soviet times, um, railway land that was sort of basically railway workers had kind of commandeered it. And so you had people who lived on the land and built homes on the land, but they didn't technically own it. It was um, it was technically belonged to the railway, but people just looked the other way. But he kicked them off um, out of out of their um, homes as well. Um, and then separately, there was also just land that where people just lived. I mean, they had homes, they had title to the land, and they just one day a bunch of notices went up on the doors. This land, th these homes are being reclaimed for a vital national purpose. Um, which turned out to be the vital national purpose was a, a Trump hotel and luxury residence, which is illegal under Azerbaijani law. You're not allowed to uh, use eminent domain to build anything other than um, a very specific set of structures. One of the things that uh, in uh, discussing this issue with the Trump organization and their attorney, Mr. Garden, for your piece uh, the Trump organization took the position that it was merely a licensor, which allowed its uh, famous name to be used by a company headed by Anar Mamadov, uh, the son of the uh, minister. Did your research uh, indicate that that was uh, just that case, or was the Trump organization more intimately involved with the development of the entire project? Yeah, and I, I would really love, Tom, your your thoughts on this as well, because, you, as you know, you were helpful in me thinking this through as I was writing. Um, so the, the official story that the Trump Organization put out and still claims is, is true um, is, hey, we were just licensors. We sold our name. They, you know, we don't know anything about Azerbaijan. We don't know anything about how this building went up. That's um, and and. Um, you know, you really can't hold us accountable. We met this um, we met this nice young man named Anar Mamadov, and we heard that his dad was a government official. But what does that have to do with us? That has nothing to do with us. Um, and you know, I, I looked into the FCPA and the history of FCPA prosecution, and I did learn that no licensor has been, as I understand it, has been prosecuted, or there's been no deferred settlement agreement or anything. Um, with a licensor, but I also spoke to several people, um, including you, who said that there's no inherent reason in the law why they couldn't be. And it, and it seemed like there was a general consensus that the more involved a licensor is in the project, um, the more liability, essentially, that they take on. And forgive me if I'm using legal terms incorrectly, but, you know, if, if, I'm, a, if I'm McDonald's and I sell a franchise to a, a McDonald's in a mall in Azerbaijan and the mall is built with corrupt, you know, in a, in a corrupt way and with bribery, it, it probably isn't reasonable to blame McDonald's for that or to push that on McDonald's. But this case was very, very different. Um, the uh, Trump organization um, was so intimately involved. Now, the, the you know, they insist we had control and we had no equity. Um, they didn't have equity, although they did have a profit share um, in, in, in the project. But as far as control goes, I mean, it's possible that technically they didn't have control, but effectively they decided everything about this project. And not just design, it was not just, oh, you got to use this quality towel or, you know, as, as you might often see 
um, in, in a hotel or even, you know, you, you have to meet these standards of marble. But this was a case where you had, um, as the building was going up, um, I should say, was a shell that went up without the trunks, but the shell of the building was totally redesigned, fundamentally, bottom to top. And the Azerbaijanis would put together um, a plan for the next month, and then they'd wait, and then some people fly from New York to Azerbaijan each month, Trump, Trump Organization officials, and they'd approve the work orders, you know, essentially, you know, say, okay, you can do this, you can do this. Yep, don't do it this way, do it this way. And then they do the work orders they had agreed on, and then a month later or sometimes two weeks later, depending on um, the level of involvement, um, the Trump folks would come back and approve the next round of work orders. And um, the Trump organization, you know, the, the, the developer was also the construction manager, and the Trump organization said, you don't, you're not good as a construction manager. We're getting rid of you. Uh, and so the Trump organization helped oversee a process of selecting a new construction manager. They helped craft the business plan, et cetera. I mean, this was a – they were acting as – you know, extremely much like a developer, I would say, and not very much like any model of, of licensing that we might have in our minds. So from the... And, and I do want to make clear, Tom, that I'm not, you know, I am a journalist and I am, you know, I'm not the Department of Justice. I'm not a, a judge. I'm not saying I know for sure they broke the FCPA. Right. Um, what I am saying is it's extremely troubling. It's troubling, obviously, because Donald Trump is now president. And, and so even if they it wasn't a technical violation of the law, it's still trouble. I, I think I talked to some lawyers who thought it was a fairly clear violation of the FCPA, others who didn't think it was. But I didn't talk to anyone who thought this was reasonable behavior or appropriate and responsible behavior, basically doing no due diligence, going, getting into bed with one of the most corrupt families in one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Nobody thought that was cool. But I do feel that, as, you know, as a journalist, we, we had some interesting conversations within the office and, and with some lawyers outside of the office, because what some of the... FCPA, former FCPA prosecutors from the DOJ told me is this would be a really tough case to prosecute. It's, it would require, you know, getting documentation from Azerbaijan. It would, you know, it would be a really tough case. It's a bit small potatoes. You know, the Trump organization made about $3 million from the deal. So how, how big would the, you know, how big would the award be? And, you know, the FCPA unit does tend to prefer kind of guaranteed home runs. They, you know, they get a lot of like over the transom um, self-admissions from corporations. Why would anybody go for a really hard case? And I remember talking to someone who used to be a high-level FCPA prosecutor and saying, I can't, as a journalist, I can't limit myself to what prosecutors using prosecutorial discretion would limit themselves." to. Right. You might decide you pretty much want to prosecute 100% guarantee cases. But as a journalist, I need to write about, you know, if there's an 8% chance that our president technically broke the law, and there's a, you know, 98% chance that he did some very questionable things ethically, 
I think that demands I would be irresponsible as a journalist not to report on that. Well, I think we could probably both agree that uh, you've raised some very troubling questions that need to be asked around the conduct. Uh, some of the things you've touched upon, clearly the, the lack of due diligence on the partners. Uh, you visited with uh, Alexander Raggi from Trace, really about the hiring of the partner himself, Amir, uh, and her discussion about having a family member of a government official as your business partner and the need to show that the family member really had, uh, had real expertise and real ability to do the work as opposed to simply uh, just being a partner uh, to use their parents' power. Um, but then you really took the story in a, in a different direction, one that I was not expecting, and that's uh, an Iranian connection. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, so I started off the story thinking this is an STCA story and that that's all it is. Um, but in reporting the story um, through some, some lucky breaks and some, some help, um, I really I, I was able to peel the layer. I, I was able to see the level of connection that the Mamadoff family had with um, some, some people who seemed to be high-ranking officials with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And this, I was not the person to, the first reporter to mention this. There, there is this WikiLeaks cable that, um, from, from 2009, 2010, that makes reference to the possibility that the Mamadovs are, are friends with some sketchy, um, uh, um, with some sketchy uh, uh, um, uh, folks in, in Iran. But, nobody really knew who they were. Nobody got into it. And so with some, you know, reporting tricks and some, some real help from, from some people who want to be nameless, um, I, I was able to figure out who these guys were. Um, it's a family called the Darvishi family. And they're really like almost like an Iranian analog to the Mamadov family. Um, Darvishi's, um, it's, uh, three or four brothers. We never could figure out who the fourth brother is, but we know about three of them. Um, who fought in the Iran-Iraq War, who became sort of heroes, Revolutionary Guard heroes. And as happens in Iran, um, Revolutionary Guard heroes go on to get, often get some pretty sweet deals <laughs> in life. And so one of them, and, and it actually turned out two of them at different times, became the head of the Tehran Metro. And then the brothers made, um, some of the other brothers made a, a fortune building the Tehran Metro. Um, and uh, they also had a very close connection to an entity called Qatam El Anbiya, which is owned by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, and, but is the biggest construction company in Iran. Uh, it's a weird thing. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, there's no analog in America. It, there, it's not the military. There is a military. The IRGC is its own sort of military entity, but it doesn't protect the nation as territorially. It protects the Ayatollah and the Islamic system of Iran. But it's still got an army, a navy, an air force, 150,000 you know, personnel, plus tons of businesses. It's a huge force. And Qatam El Anbiya, the entity, the IRGC entity that the Mamadas were connected to, it is a sanctioned entity by the U.S. government. It, it's um, an illegal um, 
you know, it is illegal to do business with them. I mean, it, there's a trading bargain on Iran anyway, but, but in addition, they are sanctioned for um, being part of um, weapons programs and funding terrorism. And my, my strong, and, and, and the, at the time that the Trumps were getting, you know, were working with the Mamata family to build the Trump Tower, the Mamata family is spending so much money. It is mind-boggling. I mean, this is, this is a family of, of people who largely are career government bureaucrats and, and ministers who, who, you know, their salaries are in the low $10,000 a year range, and they are spending billions, hundreds of millions, up to a billion dollars. They're building this hotel. They're, they're um, building the, the big bus station. They're building another hotel up in the north of the country. They're um, building the biggest chicken processing farm in Azerbaijan, and on and on and on. They're spending so much money. Plus, they're building these lavish mansions and buying Gulfstream jets and all of this stuff. And it's just this question, where is this money coming from? Like, even if you have the most generous um, interpretation of, um, you know, their, their corruption from just straight road contracts, there doesn't seem to be quite enough money to account for their spending. And I don't, I do know that the American government believes they were in business with the Revolutionary Guard. Um, I don't know if the money that paid the Trump organization came from the Revolutionary Guard, but it is hard to see where the money did come from. So, um, so that is a deep question that, that, you know, for me, you know, one of the deep mysteries here was the Trump organization paid with money that came from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And probably the most shocking thing out of everything is the Trump Organization, by their own admission, has known since 2015 that it's at least possible that they got paid by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Um, I gave them a lot more specific details. And to this day, they have not done a look back. They haven't done any investigation, any accounting. They have the right to audit the Mamadov's books at any time. Um, I, that I just don't get. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you, if someone said there's a chance that your company is actually funded by the Revolutionary Guard, wouldn't you go out of your way to see if that's true? Uh, certainly, and, and I really like the one of the ways you talked about it in the piece was it was really a simple, what is the source of the funds? And uh, it, that seemed to be from one of the attorneys you talked to, a fellow named Eric Ferrari. Uh, but that brought up the second quote, which as a lawyer I particularly appreciated, which was, it takes a lot to shock a lawyer, but I've had very few clients do so little due diligence. And uh, here he was not talking about kind of FCPA background, who are you doing business with due diligence, but it was due diligence on the money. What was the source of the funds? Because that is a, a critical inquiry. And uh, if you yes, exactly don't know what the source of that funds is and uh, that's really no defense. And if you don't look, and it turns out later the source of those funds was a sanctioned organization, uh, you're going to be liable. And if you receive information that would cause you to at least want to look back and you don't, that's going to increase your liability. So to really bury your head in the sand, not on the FCPA issue, but even on the 
the sanctioned entities source of the funds issue, I think, is a a very dangerous uh, tactic to utilize for a corporation. And particularly in sanctions, uh, I think the U.S. government uh, has traditionally taken a very dim view of that, of sanctioned uh, entities being the source of funds for U.S. companies. Right, exactly. And and it's, I mean, I, you know, I would be very curious from you or, or any of your listeners who wanted to reach out. Um, I mean, to me, like you, you deal with FCPA compliance all the time. That Eric Ferrari, who I quoted, he deals with, um, you know, Iran and other sanction compliance issues all the time. I and mean, this was my my first experience really digging into it. But I, I I would like help understanding sort of where this pattern of behavior falls. Um, I, I, I'm fairly certain it, it's it's pretty unusual, um, but I'd I'd be curious, is it, you know. Five percent, ten percent, forty percent. That you know, would you know, if if a client came to you and said, "Hey, we're thinking of doing this business deal. The family has been called the most notoriously corrupt family in Azerbaijan. Um, they also have this connection with the Revolutionary Guard. We don't. I mean, it almost makes you laugh. It's so crazy. Um, we have no idea where the money comes from. We never ask them. Um, should we do this deal?" <laughs> It's it's hard to imagine any compliance professional saying, yeah, I, I don't know, why not? You know, it seems like a good a good idea. Um, but what what's your sense? Is this you know is this something five percent of companies might do? Zero percent, thirty percent? Your guess. So I'm in Houston, the uh, not only energy capital of world of the world, but the FCPA epicenter of the world. More enforcement actions have gone against companies in this city than any other city on earth. And of course that's around that's energy. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So uh, energy has been in the forefront of FCPA prosecutions, unfortunately for um, a good 10 or 15 years. And because of that, there's extreme sensitivity to all of the issues uh, that you raised. Now it's not illegal under the FCPA to fail to do due diligence. The, the, trouble companies get into is if they do not do adequate due diligence and a third party or other party engages in bribery and corruption, they have no defense and they have no way to uh, lessen a um, FCPA penalty, which can be uh, quite draconian, up to $2 million uh, per violation on the criminal side of the statute. So the monies can uh, add up quite quickly. Under the sentencing guidelines, there's a um, a range of factors that gives you a multiplier and you put that multiplier in and, and you have a, a high end and a low end of a potential range. So it's uh, there's really no correlation between the amount of the bribe paid and the fine at the end of the day. And the, really the classic case on that is Avon, which paid $8 million in bribes, had $135 million in fines and penalties, but that would pale besides the $500 million they had in reported pre-settlement uh, investigative and uh, remediation cost, and up to another 250 post-settlement. So the the numbers can uh, go up quite rapidly, separate and apart from the fine and penalty. Uh, as a private company, the uh, Trump organization would not be subject to the SEC regulation of the FCPA, but the criminal penalties can can add up quite quickly at that $2 million per uh, 
bribe paid or offer to bribe pay. So if you don't do the type of due diligence that uh, you have uh, pointed out or at least suggested uh, was not done in this case, a company really has no defense. And um, on the uh, AML side, I'm not as familiar with that, but uh, you have to have a, a compliance program regarding money laundering, and that's the source of the funds issue, the sanctioned part. So um, you, you really are setting your company up for a huge fall with uh, no potential defenses and um, potential criminal liability. Gotcha. So it, it, in short, not many companies that you know would do it. And the ones that do are taking on really almost open-ended risk. It's, uh, it's, um, open-ended and you know unending. And in Houston, I would say that there are zero companies who don't do that, uh, largely because of the experience of this city where almost every company has either gone through an enforcement action or at least an investigation where someone has looked at that. Now, I should say the Trump Organization, the the general counsel there um, said to me, no, no, we did do due diligence. I asked many, many times, can you just walk me through what you did? He was. He said he couldn't. Um, and he also said he didn't know what they did because he wasn't a lawyer on the deal, um, which I'm not sure if that means he misplaced the due diligence and can't find it or, or what that means exactly. I would think they would have the due diligence there. Um, but they do say we did all appropriate due diligence. But I, I just I, I talked to lots of people who do due diligence and everyone agreed that this would have been. You know, the, the red flags would have been impossible to ignore um, that, you know, it, you, you do the slightest bit in, in Azerbaijan and you'll quickly be warned away from doing business with the Mamadovs. An interesting counterexample, by the way, is National Geographic. Um, I didn't get into it in the piece just because we didn't have time, but um, Anar Mamadov, the, the son of the transportation minister, did get the National Geographic um, license in uh, in Azerbaijan. But their process was very different. They, they knew that this was a high-risk um, relationship. And so they did go out of their way to ensure that Anar Mamadov was capable of producing the National Geographic magazine. And um, as far as I can tell, that, you know, photography and art and nature is, is an actual passion of his. He did hire the best people in Azerbaijan who could, you know, really edit a magazine like that. And also, you know, National Geographic at the time was a nonprofit with a education motive. So it, it, it wasn't, it was a very different model, but it did strike me as interesting that that was a way you could imagine doing a deal where you really do establish the sun is, um, you know, the, he is good at, at this thing. He's not good at building luxury hotels, but he's very good at, at making a magazine. Um, but that, um, but, but that's almost the exception that, that, that proves the rule because the Trump, the very first thing the Trump organization did when they signed their deal with the Mamadas is say, you can't build this hotel because you're so bad at building hotels. <laughs> right. So under the National Geographic scenario, what would, if I could translate that into FCPA speak, uh, we would say that uh, the risks were assessed, the risks were evaluated. It was evaluated at high risk, but simply because something is high risk doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you have to manage that risk more closely. And if you put uh, 
appropriate risk management tools and techniques around it, then and monitor it closely, you can you can move forward with the high risk. And and really that's what the U.S. government wants to see, an assessment of your risk. And then uh, if it is a high risk, uh, either a plan to move forward with an appropriate level of risk management or uh, you walk away from the deal because it's simply too risky uh, in terms of potentially violating the FCPA. So that's a really an excellent uh, contrast to draw in how you can have this sort of situation, particularly with the uh, son of a f- uh, foreign minister or minister of uh, government in the country of Azerbaijan and still move forward on a business arrangement. Right. And, and in that case, you know, there, there was no profit. It, it's fairly modest monetarily. So it, it is a very, very different case. Um, and, and as far as I can tell from what the Trump organization told me, they, you know, they, they did zero ongoing due diligence. So their claim is that, um, there was nothing publicly available when they signed the deal in 2012. Now, that that isn't true. The WikiLeaks stuff was was available. Um, the slightest bit of in-country due diligence would have revealed um, the Mimados reputation. Um, but let's just give put them at their word. There were major news articles about the Mamadov's corruption, including mention of their Iran ties in 2013, 2014, 2015. So um, so. And, and as far as I can tell from what they told me, I don't know this for sure, they didn't have any ongoing method of, you know, even as simple as a Google alert, uh, um, to make sure that their uh, partners around, uh, around the world hadn't become embroiled in some kind of um, corruption scheme, which, which struck me as another example of, of I think, not, not exactly best practice. Uh, certainly, certainly not best practice, and we've actually had FCPA enforcement actions where that uh, precise issue came up, the lack of ongoing monitoring or due diligence of your third-party partners simply to find out that one had crossed that membrane between private citizen and foreign official or political party member in this particular case. So uh, you're absolutely correct that there's a, a requirement for not only due diligence but ongoing due diligence as well. And, Tom, I... I know this is your show, but I'm a reporter down to the bone, so I'm going to keep asking you questions. If I can ask one more question. Sure. Um, so one thing that came up a lot in reporting the story is people said to me, well, wait a second, there's, there's a Four Seasons, there's a Marriott, there's a Hilton in Azerbaijan, and all of those projects were done with different government officials, because basically in Azerbaijan, anything of any size is going to be done with a government official. And... Um, so why do you, you know, is, are you just picking on the Trump organization? And I, I sort of had two answers for that. And I'd just be curious your thoughts. So answer one is, um, the other major hotels, as I was told by lawyers there, were, they, they worked extremely hard to kind of ring fence those hotel deals so that while they were doing business with people who in other contexts had exhibited corruption, they were making sure that their projects did not exhibit corruption. Um, As someone pointed out to me, if you're the four seasons, Azerbaijan needs you a lot more than you need Azerbaijan. (laughs) You're able to 
say to the government officials, like, hey, no funny business on this one. We're not, right. We're not up for that. Um, and, you know, all the big four accounting firms are in town. There's a bunch of international law firms in town. And, and so there's a lot of experience, um, uh, you know, figuring out how to do these deals so that they're not um, too uh, sketchy, <laughs> to use a technical legal term. Um, and um, so that's one answer, that the Mamadas really are, even for Azerbaijan, kind of a standout. But then my other answer is, maybe the FCPA folks should take a careful look, especially at five-star hotels around the world. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of my career traveling and spent a lot of time in the Middle East and other highly corrupt nations. And, you know, the it seems to me that the business model of a lot of five-star hotels in, you know, especially in emerging economies, highly corrupt economies, is to create a you know, a special destination place, which often means a place that is tied to the existing power structure. Um, I remember living in Jordan, in, in Amman, Jordan, and there's a lot of luxury hotels there, and you'd know which family controls which one. And the Hyatt, where I stayed, was controlled by a very wealthy Palestinian family across the way before the war. There was a giant hotel controlled by Saddam Hussein, um, there were um, other hotels controlled by other families. And, and the connection to the government officials was a part of the sales pitch effectively, because in those countries, you know, you want to have your wedding and I was about to jokingly say your son's bar mitzvah, but <laughs> you want to have your wedding or your social <laughs> event or just your dinner um, in a in the right place that sends the right signal to the right people. I think we're seeing an analog of that with, with the Trump Hotel in D.C. And so I, I, I was kind of wondering, like, maybe, maybe this area of hotel licensing is ripe for a, a review. You know, maybe, maybe, it, maybe there should be some, some investigation there. Well, let me, let me unpack that uh, in two answers uh, because it really presented two separate questions. On the first question is how do these how did these other um, entities do so? Uh, that really goes back to my uh, my answer about the risk management process, where if you have a robust risk management process doing a, a, an appropriate risk assessment, including your background due diligence of your partners, understanding the source of the funding, and then uh, if it is, turns out that there's a, a foreign official involved, that does not stop the project because then you have to determine uh, if the payment uh, is, if the payment is to in a way that gives you a business uh, advantage or a business opportunity, that would violate the FCPA. But uh, here we had, uh, if you have a, a foreign official who condemns land or provides land for a project, uh, that could be seen as a direct uh, improvement of your business opportunity or at least relating to that. If you're doing business with some other minister, minister of health, minister of you name the, the ministry, that really has nothing to do with the regulation of hotels or the construction of new buildings, uh, that might be something, that might be a risk that you can adequately manage if you ring fence it uh, the way you've suggested has been done in other cases. On the second part of, of uh, is this area ripe for review, uh, or at least uh, uh, someone at the uh, FCPA unit at the Department of Justice or SEC taking a look at, uh, the history of FCPA enforcement over the past 10 years is replete 
with what we call industry sweeps. And uh, the DOJ gets one case, and uh, from that one case, they either figure out the business model or figure out that they need to take a look at the industry. So we've seen industry sweeps, in certainly in my uh, uh, industry of, of energy here in Houston, but we've also seen industry sweeps in pharmaceuticals, uh, in armament manufacturers, uh, IT, uh, both hardware and software. So we've seen a wide variety of in, uh, industry sweeps. Uh, we have one currently going on now regarding a, a private equity investment firms that went into Libya after uh, the opening when after Gaddafi renounced uh, nuclear weapons. So um, that is a, a, a model that the Department of Justice has used in the past. And if they get one case that really communicates to them the overall, either the overall parade pervasiveness of corruption within an industry, or it really gives them the model of how corruption is occurring, and they can go to other players in that industry. That's certainly something that uh, they could could and have done in the past. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I, especially because I, you know, I, I get to stay sometimes in nice five-star hotels in highly corrupt nations, so I don't want to ruin the business model completely <laughs> for selfish reasons. <laughs> Um, I did want to just emphasize to your listeners, like I, I found this area so fascinating and, and I took it extremely seriously. You know, when you're, when you're writing an article for the general public, you know, often you can't get at all the technical details. Um, and, um, and, but I really enjoyed learning about FCPA prosecution, learning about the history um, of it, learning about, um, the, you know, the folks like you who, who help with compliance. Um, it was just, you know, it's just a really exciting, fun area to, to get into. Well, Adam, and I, I kind of wish I was able to get into more of the complexity. I was wondering if any of my listeners wanted to follow up directly with you or pose questions to you or answer some of the questions you've posed to us. Uh, could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? Yeah, no, I'd be thrilled. Adam underscore Davidson at NewYorker.com. And, you know, I, um, I can assure you I'm very good at honoring um, off-the-record comments. You know, I talk to a lot of people for this article whose names you will never learn because I will keep them dear to myself. Um, you know, Tom, you... Uh, it was actually a bit frustrating since no one who had ever worked for the Justice Department wanted to be on the record. Nobody who worked at any of those hotels wanted to be up the, on the record. Most attorneys in private practice didn't want to be on the record. So um, it was a bit, you know, I understand everyone's terrified of being the victim of a Trump tweet. But um, but that's okay. I understand. I don't want anyone to lose their job or get in trouble because of an article I wrote. So, um, so I'm, you know, Communicating with me does not mean your name is going to be anywhere. I, I will honor whatever um, whatever confidentiality you need. Well, Adam, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, but I hope that we can continue the conversation, and I hope that you can continue this most excellent reporting. Thank you so much. That's awesome. It was really fun talking. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it will help in our rankings and also help to get the word out about one of the top compliance podcasts around. Also, if you have any questions, 
please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I'm going to link to uh, Adam's piece in the show notes. It's a fascinating piece, and every compliance practitioner owes it to themselves to read it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.